So lots of stuff happened in 1968. That's probably not a big surprise. Here's uh, here's some first interesting things to start off with. Movies at the time were a dollar thirty. Gas was only thirty four cents. And also in 1968, the first Big Mac was sold. So there you go. That'll put everything into context for you. <laughs> you need you need one more fact. Okay. The, the minimum wage was a dollar. Minimum wage was a dollar. Holy cow. Because when you want to figure out what things are worth, you can't just go by, like, the dollar amounts. Mm-hmm. You need to ask. Um, so when you're trying to figure out what things are worth, you can't just use the nominal price. Yeah. You have to measure it against, you know, what it takes to get them because money is just a, a store of value. Right. And so the, the thing that we're really trading in to buy our stuff is the time it takes for us to earn it. So, like, the best calculation is how many hours does it take to buy the thing? So you can take that Big Mac, figure out what the median wage was in 1968, or you'd pick some, like, specific occupation that you think is typical. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, figure out how long it would take them to buy a Big Mac and then compare that to some some similar person today. So I have done this work, by the way. Although okay. the date that I've normally done is 1975. Okay. For, you know, reasons that are relevant to contemporary politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things I find to be exactly the same. Pencils, for example. You go through the Sears catalog in 1975. You figure out what the, the you know, median wage was and how long would it take that person to buy pencils and what does it cost us to buy pencils? The exact same. Uh, TVs, enormously cheaper. So you may remember uh, visiting our grandparents uh, and having this giant piece of furniture, this console TV, right? It's a, like wood encased. It's got speakers in it. It's a yep. giant, giant. Although the TV, the TV itself is horrible, right? The <laughs> yes. resolution is bad. The screen isn't very good. But you know, it's it's the best they got. Yep. Um, you know, something like that would take an enormous amount of time, right? Many weeks of labor to purchase this item. Whereas today, for two hundred two hundred fifty dollars, you can go to Walmart or Best Buy or whatever, and buy yourself not the top of the line but a very good, very large wall-mounted TV that will take up no space in your, on your floor because you're going to mount it to the wall. You will get you know, quality that, while not the best that we could get today, mm-hmm. you know, it's, so it's not going to be like that uh, you know, super amazing stuff. It's still really, really good. Yeah. And uh, so we're, you know, in that sense, we're buying much better TVs in you know, two, two days, mm, $250. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's not going to take anybody more than two days to buy something like that. Right. Some people could buy that in a day. Well, you know, it was true that by like the sixties over like, what, like over 50% of the, uh, of the, of America had TVs. That's crazy to think about. Well, another thing to think about, um, and this this leads into our uh, you know discussion of Lucy, mm-hmm. right? Is how many people were watching Lucy? Yeah, 
you know, it was enormous because, you know, as they point out at the beginning of the movie, you know, a, a good show today is getting 10, maybe 15 million viewers and lots of shows that are critically hailed like Mad Men are lucky to get a million. Yeah. And, you know, the number of people who are watching this are in the tens of millions every week. And so, for example, the number of people who watched Eisenhower's uh, second inauguration were like 29 million. The number mm -hmm. of people who watched Lucy give birth to uh, little Ricky, 44 mm -hmm. million. Wow. And, you know, if you remember, as, as just a kind of marker, there were only half as many Americans at the end of World War II than there are today. So, you know, while the baby boom had begun, lots of those people are not making television choices, mm -hmm. right? They, they may be making requests in the home, but in a home where there's only one television, it's the adults who are deciding what goes on. Right. If, if they want to watch Walter Cronkite and the kids want to watch, you know, uh, Bonanza or whatever, nope, it's Cronkite. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the, the population's nearly double. Can you imagine, you know, 90 million people watching something today? That'd be crazy. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would have, to, it'd have to be like a royal wedding or something like that. Mm-hmm. For us to tune in. Well, let's get introductions out of the way because we forgot those. My name's Matt, coming to you live from Austin and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Greetings from Planet Houston. <laughs> uh, we are this week talking about 1968. There's a lot of things that happened this year. Uh, one of the important things is, is that there's stuff that has happened that happens this year that influences Star Trek. So that's kind of uh that's kind of a big deal, and one of the things we're really going to try and hit on as we uh, go over uh, 1968. One of the biggest things that happened this year is that there was a uh, pretty famous television show that started as a mid-season replacement, of all things, on NBC. And the name of that show was Laugh-In. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Laugh-In was one of the uh, first sketch comedy shows to be on the air. Um, well, it's, it's, it's the new form of sketch comedy. So there would have been the old kind, you know, which was vaudeville. Your show of shows and... Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, the, and this was one of the first, uh, first shows to do some political satire involved. Uh, it also embraces the sort of counterculture, uh, that was happening at the time. You, if you look up any clip of laughing, you're going to see, uh, that all over the place on that show. One of the very interesting things, of course, about Laugh-In was that in uh, September, which would be going into its like first full season, a, a guy named Richard Nixon, who was running for the uh, was running for president at the time, showed up and said the famous immortal words "Saka to me," which was a big catchphrase on the show. And uh, that, of course, had really never happened. We had never seen a uh, a political figure come on to TV, sort of, you know, have a uh, have a laugh at... Uh, Talk uh, about at, his underwear or play a saxophone. <laughs> right, exactly, which, of course, came big later when we had, uh, you know, uh, as you were pointing out, Bill Clinton and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hillary w showed up on SNL and Sarah Palin yeah. and, and all of these people who... who, uh, who now, Blurring of course, the lines between entertainment and pop culture... That's and the right. Seriousness of politics, and 
And by as little as, you know, Nixon ended up winning, a lot of people would point to this as being a big thing that put people uh, that put him over. Uh, there's a couple other things we'll talk about as we go on later that also probably uh, did the same thing. But uh, uh, a lot of people point to this as a as as you say, blurring the line between politics and uh, entertainment, causing him to probably win. As we saw, you know, he lost <laughs> to JFK, uh, you know, at the beginning of the 60s uh, on TV. You know, JFK because looking. What's that? Because of makeup. Because of makeup, exactly. JFK looking pretty amazing on, and uh, Nixon refusing to wear makeup, and then has flop sweat and doesn't look good, and everybody's not frightened of him, but they look at him and are like, well, oh, okay. The people who heard it on the radio thought Nixon won the debate. People mm. who saw it on TV thought Kennedy won the debate, which tells you that, that the old idea of this is serious politics, we're interested in the ideas mm. versus uh, I, I want a guy I can have a beer with. Right. So to bring this, of course, back around to Star Trek, this show's premiered on Monday nights at eight o'clock and it becomes over the course of its first six months, huge, the biggest hit. In the background, though, NBC was still hemming and hawing about whether or not that they were going to bring Star Trek back for its third season or not. And Gene Ronberry goes to NBC and says, hey, listen. I will come back and personally oversee the show, basically be the, what we would now call the showrunner, right? I'll work on scripts myself. I'll bring in all of the writers. I promise that I will dedicate a great amount of time into this third season if you take us off of Friday nights and put us on Monday nights. Well, uh, not surprisingly, <laughs> uh, once Laugh-In becomes this huge success, they don't want to move laughing. They want to keep laughing on on Monday nights. So what they do instead, NBC decides that instead of premiering Star Trek on Friday nights at nine o'clock, maybe a better time slot would be Friday nights at ten o'clock. This, of course, was known as like the death knell, right? This is this is where you send shows to die. A lot of this, of course, had to do with the fact that. NBC was kind of just sick of dealing with Gene Roddenberry. We'll get into a lot of this more as we get into third season. But needless to say, this is, of course, what causes Roddenberry to uh, pull away some in the third season. So, um, Interestingly, right? So I, I watched uh, Being the Ricardos. Uh-huh. And, you know, this is also a show kind of famous for breaking new ground. And creating a contentious relationship between the network and the show. Mm -hmm. right? And Desi Arnaz was the guy who was leading the, uh, the like the business side of the show. Right. Now, uh, Lucy would always be there in negotiations and Lucy was regarded as tough. Lucy, we may forget because we always see her as the, the comedic Lucy. But Lucy yeah. would have been one of those women from the 30s who you see in movies that was extremely tough, tough as nails. Mm -hmm. uh, been through the depression, been through the war, you know, not not easy to push around, right? Right. And so Lucy and Desi would come up with an idea. You know, she had been doing this radio show. She'd gotten too old to be a leading woman in in Hollywood. Okay. Right. So yeah. uh, they'd moved her to radio because she was good with her voice. 
Mm-hmm. And so she was doing a you know a show about uh, you know her husband, but it was a an actor, and the network had seen one how popular the show was, and that she had was basically acting on the radio show. They mm-hmm. had a studio audience, but she would uh, make gestures, she would move around, she was you know a, a movie actor now doing yeah. radio. She was still acting, right? And they're like. Uh, we think audiences would like that. And she's like, I'm only doing it if Desi Arnaz is my husband on the show. And they're like, no, impossible. Um, and she's like, well, then we're not doing it because this is this is a demand that I'm not going to budge on. Yeah. And she got it. Right. And then, of course, later she gets pregnant and they're like, oh, we got to cancel the show. What are we going to do? And. You know, the idea probably comes from the producer in the in the movie that make it looks like it's Desi's idea. But um, the brain trust of the show decides, no, we're going to we're going to show Lucy being pregnant on TV. The network is like, oh, my God, this, this is impossible. But they 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 like go out and they get people like the, the major advertisers mm-hmm. to go. Are, are we not like the most profitable show? Are we not the most successful thing? You, you don't trust our judgment to do this tastefully and in a way that America will love. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, it is the most viewed thing. Mm-hmm. The, the birth of little Ricky. Every, you know, yeah. America wanted to know. Yeah. They wanted to see it. And uh, but making those kinds of choices, fighting with the network, uh, doing things that were either you know progressive or that were just good television or that were like. You know, America wants to see this. There's nothing wrong with with motherhood. Right. right? Why, why are we hiding this? Mm-hmm. And of course, that was, you know, one of the things that that, uh, you know, she would constantly point out is that y- motherhood isn't beautiful. You know, are you trying to hide motherhood? What's wrong with motherhood? We're going to make yeah. the network answer the question. What is wrong with motherhood and why do we need to hide it? Yeah. And uh, so the idea that we're going to push new ground, that we're going to. Uh, have an interracial kiss that we're going to deal with rough topics that we're going to ask the hard questions mm-hmm. that that was right up uh, Lucille Ball's alley she'd been yeah. doing that in comedy you know for a long time and the idea of fighting with the network or being contentious if, if she wasn't digging it if she wasn't like hey Roddenberry he's got good ideas America should she she was at least like hey that's how you do good television Mm-hmm. I'm not bothered by it. I'm not offended by it. I'm not like, hey, it'd be nice. Play nice with the network. She was not that kind of person. Well, we're going to discuss later this episode the rural purge, but that's a, a lot of what happens on the other side of the rural purge is, is that, you know, TV was playing it safe. And I think that that's one of the interesting things about if we look at in the in the context of when Star Trek was on TV looking at everything else that was on TV and then looking past the rural purge and seeing yeah. what then became on TV, what you're seeing is Star Trek is really breaking a mold. It's really doing some different stuff. We'll get there at the end of the end of the episode. Um, <clears throat> obviously, it's hard to talk about the 60s and not discuss the uh, the Vietnam War. This is the year of the Tet Offensive. Oh, before we go on to Vietnam. Oh, yes. Um, so laughing, groundbreaking, right? Yes. Perhaps the er example but um, also just a few months before, because it was not a mid-season replacement, but it was the Carol Burnett show, mm-hmm. which was on uh, CBS. And it was this new kind of comedy as well. Um, 
and uh, also on NBC because NBC is the little dog. It's number three, right? So it's yeah. always it's always got to play catch up, and that makes them riskier. They also have the Flip Wilson show. Mm-hmm. So Flip yeah. Wilson and Laughing on NBC. Uh, CBS is trying to you know match them with some Carol Burnett, but CBS is old and slow and mm-hmm. you know conservative. Got to protect our audience, right? And they, they can see the. Uh, the, the, you're getting all the kids over there. Yeah. With Laughing and Flip Wilson. Yep. Moving on to Vietnam. <laughs> uh, we have this year's the Tet Offensive. Now, uh, this was the, uh, and I think I'm right about this, this was the Vietnamese New Year, right? Was mm-hmm. what, uh, is when this took place. And uh, it had for centuries been known as the Day of Conquering. But of course, Americans had no idea <laughs> that this was a thing. So then North Vietnam goes on this huge tear. They start attacking provincial capitals, uh, you know, uh, smaller cities. And, and this, of course, includes Saigon, which is a big deal. And it was here that the war uh, also hits the press because they were all in Saigon. So suddenly the war is like literally happening outside their hotel rooms. So they're starting to film stuff. You know, nowadays, of course, we've got crazy access to all this information and film of anything anywhere happening at any time. At this point now, too, we have people with phones. So anything that happens, somebody's just picking up their phone and recording it. But of course, this was not happening back in the 60s. This is the first time people really get to see what war is in their, you know, in their living rooms. You know, we had going back through uh, like, you know, our history of press censorship, Mm -hmm. right? We had tremendous censorship in World War One. We had much looser censorship in World War Two. Right. All right. Um, so, and what I mean here by the censorship is World War Two, we'd still keep secrets secret, but mm-hmm. we wouldn't make the bad news quite as secret as we would have in World War One. In World War One, bad news just would have been suppressed entirely. Mm. In World War Two, the fact that things didn't go well wasn't necessarily uh, suppressed. Right. A guy like Concrete, uh, concrete, Walter Cronkite and okay. Edward R. Murrow, you know, could report bad news yeah. like that that the Germans had made an advance, that they had counterattacked, that there had been, uh, you know, setbacks. Mm-hmm. By Vietnam, we really have open press. There's n- almost no press uh, censorship, you know, for the war effort. Mm-hmm. And again, because they were all over there. No, that, but during World War II, I mean, we did have press reels and that kind of stuff happening in movie theaters, but TVs weren't, you know, in everybody's house at that point. So people are listening to it on the radio, which, of course, is a very different experience than seeing a bloody soldier lying on the, you know, on the ground that we were seeing in Vietnam. Yeah, so, like, uh, the, we see photographs of uh, the Civil War and all mm-hmm. the dead. Yeah. And th- this was something we did in the Civil War. We showed those pictures. Yeah. And it's one of the things that, that uh, made the Lincoln re-election campaign difficult in 1864. It's why in World War I, we have tremendous press censorship. You would never have seen that in World War I, even though World War I is the most horrible war. Yeah. Because people knew. You, they can't see this at home. They simply cannot see it. Right. And by World War II, right, there was a sense that we're still not going to show you know, a battlefield full of dead bodies or that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's also the case that the press was much more, they were on board, right, fighting the Nazis. Right. 
And so they were not into, they knew they had good television sense or good um, movie newsreel sense. If we got to remember that something like three quarters of the country was watching movies weekly mm. in the forties. In part, there was nothing else to do, right? Everything's yeah. been rationed. You can't, you know, like we did during the pandemic, buy a bunch of stuff and be like, I don't care. I can't leave my house because I got all this stuff. There was nothing else to do but go see movies. Yeah. So movies were huge and you'd see these newsreels, but they were propagandistic, both in the sense that the government wanted to mobilize, but the media did as well because they were on board with the project. Mm -hmm. And this isn't, it's not that, Vietnam didn't have press support because in the early days, you know, fighting the communists was something everyone was kind of doing, but they weren't trying to protect the army or protect the war effort the way in World War II or certainly the way we ran World War I mm -hmm. that was being done. That was all I was going to say on Vietnam. If you've got anything else you want to add. I do. So, um, like lots of this, so there's there's two things going on. There's Kaysan, mm -hmm. which is super controversial, um, and it's being reported as well, as well as as Tet. So Kaysan reveals our strategy for winning the war, right? We were right. we were going to attrition the North. We were a country of you know 250 million people. Uh, North Vietnam had you know a handful of millions. We could just bleed them dry. Mm -hmm. You know, just by, so, you know, it's kind of a come at me, bro strategy, right? Right. We were able to get a casualty ratio of like 200 to one in Vietnam. Wow. So for every American soldier that died, we'd killed 200, uh, you know, communists, whether they were uh, the North Vietnamese Army or the South Vietnamese Viet Cong. Tremendous success. And there's all this counting, right? So the army is, you know, counting the dead, the death counts, and so forth. And the army yeah. is juicing those numbers. But they were they were naturally really, really good. Mm -hmm. And so our strategy was we're gonna we're gonna stick this base, this marine base, at Quezon. It's gonna block the the route in from Laos, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and they're gonna attack us continuously, and we're gonna let them because the casualty ratio is going to be so good for us. But this is a strategy of attrition, right? Right. It's not a strategy of maneuver. We've occupied all the cool places. It's not a strategy of the decisive battle. We're going to fight this one great battle, and when it's over, we all know that who won. And Americans weren't accustomed to this kind of thinking. We're, we're going to, they're going to kill some of ours. We're going to kill some of theirs. They, they bring a knife, we bring a gun, that's the Chicago way, right? <laughs> right. There's ways of thinking about this, but the American at-home audience wasn't like, oh, so we're actually sending people to die with, this, with the idea that we're just killing more of them. So there was that, that's Quezon. Mm -hmm. um, so Tet was portrayed in the media as a loss, right? Because okay. as you're saying, they're everywhere, and they're here in Saigon, they're at the heart of but of course, the Tet was organized by the Viet Cong, the South Vietnamese communist sympathizers. And it, the Tet Offensive was so decisively defeated, there was no more Viet Cong after Tet. Mm -hmm. It was now a war between 
North Vietnam, the North Vietnamese army and the South plus it's the United States. And the idea that like you'd have this tremendous victory, we had totally eliminated one whole category of opponent and yet it's portrayed as a loss tells you something about America's sense of invulnerability, much mm. like with 9-11. How could we be attacked? How is that even possible? Weren't we winning the war? Weren't we like super amazing? Aren't we getting these amazing casualty ratios? Mm. Well, that doesn't mean that people can't attack you. It may mean they're going to lose when they try. And a big offensive may mean a total decisive loss for them. But, you know, America didn't want to, didn't, there were, there were ways of thinking about the war that we, we had not been prepared for, mm-hmm. right? That leaders hadn't uh, sold to the public. That this was our strategy. We have this problem today, right? Like, what is our strategy in, in Iraq or Afghanistan? Nobody had sold a strategy. They had mm-hmm. basically sold, we're going to win, we're going to defeat the terrorists, full stop, don't need to go into any kind of details. Whereas, you know, had you done the work of, explaining how we're going to win then when when this when there are setbacks but you can see the plan is working people would have been like well of course mm-hmm. it turns out that if you want to drive to colorado from maryland you're going to have to make a lot of bathroom stops wait nobody had told me about the bathroom stops <laughs> well it turns out people have to pee every once in a while and that wow. means we can make a lot of bathroom stops plus what else what else is there to do in a long car ride except for drink right so we will be stopping a lot. Wait, wait, wait. Nobody told me about all these stops. This is, this is, <laughs> not, you know, outrageous. we can't make this kind of trip. This was a kind of the, the problem going on is that we, we had not sold the war pro- correctly. Mm-hmm. So that an amazing victory like Tet feels like to the press, to the country, a failure rather than a tremendous success. So what you're saying is that the uh, press is shaping the way we think about things. Yeah, absolutely. Weird. Never heard that before. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, still happening today. Yep. Uh, we also have a problem with... And, and often in a way that's, that's both genuine in the sense mm-hmm. that they were not trying to lie, but turns out to be fake news. Mm-hmm. Right? It was not accurate. It was not a, a correct sense of how things were going. Right. Um, but it was genuine. They were they were telling you what they saw. Right. Exactly. Despite the fact we took care of the Viet Cong. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, we also have a crisis with North Korea. They captured the USS Pueblo, which had been in international waters, according to the U.S. Uh, they make an attempt to escape, but the North Koreans open fire on them. So with this inevitable capture, they start destroying all this classified information. 83 crew members were taken to Pyongyang, where they were uh, tortured and coerced into confessions. Uh, They were beaten several times over the 11 months for acts of subversion. Like they wanted wanted, uh, the crew to go on TV and say like, hey, we're good. Don't worry. We're being handled so fine. But because they were using sarcastic remarks while they were saying saying the the things, uh, they were beaten again for a week. I mean... It's an interesting tale, and definitely you should look it up. Uh, uh, luckily, by uh, December of this year, 1968, they were uh, the crew was released. Uh, one of the reasons this is interesting, besides the fact that it happened in this year, is that this also becomes a uh, Star Trek episode in the third season. So look forward to that. Uh, this also sounds a bit of the uh, 
Captain Picard Kardashian episode. There are four lights. That one. Yep, yep. Also, this year, we've got uh, uh, two big assassinations that occur. Um, Bobby Kennedy, who uh, earlier in the year stood with uh, MLK. He wants to pull out of Vietnam. He wants to increase race relations. He's pushing a very progressive agenda. And of course, he'd be dead by the end of the year, as would, not surprisingly, MLK. Uh, Bobby was assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan. And while we don't exactly know what his uh, what his um, reasoning behind it was, we can uh, certainly guess that there was something Bobby wasn't doing that he uh, he, he didn't like. And, well, so uh, Sirhan Sirhan was Palestinian. Right. And uh, it may have been connected to the the Mideast Wars. Right. And then, of course, uh, MLK was uh, was killed by James Earl Ray. One of the things that this shows us is that there have always been extremists, right? We, we think that it's like now happening like it's never happened before. But yet, throughout all of history, you can find the extremists who are willing to, you know, go and do something ridiculous to, uh, to further their cause. Yeah, so 1968... And into then 1969 is kind of a year of craziness. This is when the Prague Spring begins. You get, you know, riots in Paris. Right. Uh, the, the world is basically having, you know, it's not just America. And certainly mm-hmm. America's got all kinds of stuff going on with uh, uh, riots in, in cities, assassinations. But there are assassinations elsewhere. And even in, in nice Australia, we don't get an assassination. But a prime minister goes missing. Hmm. Right. It, it's very likely that he drowned swimming or for, perhaps there was a shark attack. Yeah. Uh, but they never found his body. And there was a political crisis. You had to get a new prime minister. Wow. So, you know, you look at like assassinations across the world, uh, rioting across the world, and you realize this is a global phenomenon mm-hmm. and it's got its American like focus. Yeah, I mean, there was at the time people thought that in Paris we were going to have another like revolution in France, where you know it yeah. was like th- there's going to be an overthrow of the uh, of the current government. Mm-hmm. So the Prague Spring starts in January. By August, the Soviet Union invades Czechoslovakia because mm-hmm. of the Warsaw Pact, right? Yeah, yeah. How about the uh, the founding of Apple Records in May? Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't. So I Apple, did miss that. Apple Records is founded, and right. uh, you know, like being the Ricardos, if you wanted to, you could, uh, you know, watch the Get Back documentary, right? And uh, kind of get a sense of this would be 1969, but January of 1969. So very as close as you get to 1968. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's pretty close. Yeah. Um. All I was going to wrap up with with Bobby Kennedy and MLK is just to say that obviously they were pushing a very uh, progressive agenda, which of course is also very, again, we'll well, we continue to talk about this episode is also something that Star Trek was doing at the you know at the very same time, as we've already seen you know just the inter- the international crew that we have on board, a uh, you know an African American uh, uh, admiral in in um, Starfleet. Uh, and of course, as you already pointed out, we got our first interracial kiss that happens on TV, thanks to Star Trek as well. 
again, these things weren't happening. They were happening in real life, but they weren't happening on TV. And so as we, again, we'll talk about the Royal Purge, and maybe now it's just the time to talk about it. But as we talk about the Royal Purge, that's one of the things, the, the one of the reasons it happened was because, because... Uh, TV uh, was becoming obviously artificial. Right, exactly. They weren't showing what was happening in real life. Right, so one of the arguments that, that like, Lucy makes on I Love Lucy is... America wants to see itself, right? Mm -hmm. One of her arguments as an older woman uh, doing stuff was, you, you don't think there are, you know, like, uh, when she gets fired by RKO because she's too old, she's like, you don't think uh, there are 39-year-old women who want to see themselves in, in your movies? And that idea that America wants to see itself on TV, mm -hmm. that, like, so uh, uh, Vivian Vaughn, right, who plays Ethel, um, did not like the way Ethel was made to look frumpy and unattractive because Vivian Vaughn was actually much more attractive than Ethel was. Mm -hmm. And Lucy's point was, America looks a lot more like Ethel than it does like Lucy. <laughs> mm -hmm. if people like Ethel because Ethel looks like them. And so she wouldn't let uh, Vivian Vaughn look attractive when she would occasionally try to, you know, get wardrobe to help her look prettier, Lucy would be like, no, Ethel needs to look frumpy because Americans are, you know, there, there's, we haven't gotten tied to the fashion, the super fashionable 60s or, or later in which people are looking good, right? Mm -hmm. People are, you know, fashion comes uh, to, to the every person, the, you know, the idea that you're buying $200 sneakers or something. This is, this is still way in the future. Yeah. People are still, uh, if not obviously, wartime frugal or depression era frugal. People are mm -hmm. still pretty frugal. That yeah. doesn't go away overnight. And so, you know, there's this idea that you have to see America, right? By, by 1968, this is a, uh, a, a very particular depiction of America that feels very artificial. Right. And that's and that's all of those all of those shows that we've already already discussed because that's what was on TV: Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, which you know our 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 next producer, our next showrunner of the show, actually wrote episodes for. People think that he was like no comedy in Star Trek, but that was a Gene Roddenberry thing, right? That wasn't yeah. because he had no sense of humor. He's like, no, I've written for <laughs> sitcoms in the past. So, uh, but Beverly Hillbillies, uh, Andy Griffith. And then, of course, we also have their spinoff, Gomer Pyle, which has just been a thorn in Star Trek side. And because, maybe, you know, 50 percent, 50 percent of people who are watching TV are watching Gomer Pyle. On and Friday this nights. tells you something about the rural purge, because these are successful shows. Yeah. Now, one thing about like realistic television is that people don't necessarily want to watch it. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a, a strong argument in entertainment that it's escapist yeah people want to go to a happy place that they want to watch um good characters being successful not right. good characters failing or bad characters being successful right and you can occasionally get a good show that works like that mm -hmm. but what you'll often find out is that the ratings suck that it's crit it's way more critically successful than it is audience successful Mm -hmm. And if you are 
and, and I will pick on HBO. If you are getting paid in huge uh, fraction based on the fact that you're on cable networks mm-hmm. and your shows don't necessarily have to have ratings because you are not advertising based. Right. Then you can do interesting, challenging television that, you know, kind of turns the mirror back on America and you can do a Breaking Bad or a Sopranos. Right. And you'll get the critical kudos, which is what they're actually looking for. Mm-hmm. Right. Rather than the uh, and the idea that HBO has this kind of challenging, interesting, cool TV. Yeah. And then you, then you could go and watch, you know, Seinfeld or something like that on it, mm-hmm. feeling like I'm on the cool channel watching <laughs> the same thing I would be watching anywhere else. <laughs> but that's the thing. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things about the Royal Purge, obviously, as we continue to talk about it, is that the, again, it's not a reflection of what's happening in life. It's kind of an escapist, almost, uh, you know, even after the Royal Purge, just to kind of throw some of the rural viewers and whatnot a bone, they show the Walton's Christmas special. And then, of course, that spins off into a show called The Walton Waltons, which is hugely successful. Um uh, but you know, we we're also at this point getting a lot more uh urbanization and suburban, which is really part of what helps helps really shape the uh shape the television landscape at this point. Yeah, so you know the idea was that you wanted young, hip, urban people on TV. And of course, by young, hip, and urban, we mean, I can't remember her name now, Mary Tyler Moore. Mm-hmm. Who, like, was it that we could think of way, way younger than Mary Tyler Moore. But she was um, young enough that, like, her demographic, the people watching her, mm-hmm. and people tend to, we tend to watch older people and admire them and aspire to be them. So, you know, if, if she is 35, then you've got like 30, 28-year-olds watching and going, yeah, I want to be a successful career person <laughs> like Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah. Um, whereas having, uh, you know, uh, Murder, She Wrote or uh, what was the Andy Griffith show where he's the detective? Matlock. Matlock. You know, or those kinds of things are things where old people are watching going, yeah, old people still getting stuff done. Right. Yeah. You know, it's not attracting the kids. Yeah. And people tend to watch people who are not only in their own age group, but kind of toward the top. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't, you don't get teenagers watching high school uh, or, you know, junior high. They're not watching the Wonder Years. Right. Right. Those are adults watching the Wonder Years, being nostalgic about the past. Yeah. You don't have uh, high schoolers watching Saved by the Bell. But they, they would want to watch something about someone who's in their 20s doing cool, interesting downtown stuff, right. facing the same kind of problems they do, like dating and relationships that go south mm-hmm. and you know, those kind of early work problems. So, Well, you also and, and as we say, we, they, uh, the palette changes from it's not white people anymore, you know, all over yep. TV. We're now getting, you know, uh, all Good in the times. family. Yeah, All in the Family, which spins off into the Jeffersons. Good Times is another uh, great example where, you know, suddenly the landscape of television completely changes and becomes more diversified into, you know, leading into everything that we know today. Like, as you said, leading into Breaking Bad, leading into, uh, you know, entire, you know, BET television, all of these things which never would have existed in the past because it reminded, because 
somebody was actually quoted a, a network person at the time was actually quoted as saying like seeing a, a, a person of a different race on TV would remind the home viewer of unrest and we don't want that. So, well, so that's a particularly kind of 1968 problem, right? Uh -huh. You know, um, obviously nobody is, is, uh, likes the idea of the, the minstrel shows, right? Right. But the purpose of the minstrel show was to introduce um, this core part of America, Black America, to immigrants who had no idea of any kind, right? You're coming from the hills of Italy, coming from the hills of Hungary, coming from right. the hills of, of Russia. And, you know, so there's this kind of an introduction, which is um, not an attempt to uh, you know, to make Black America look really good, but to introduce it to people who don't know, who are ignorant, but perhaps curious. Yep. And this idea of the media supposed to integrate the country by showing us each other, it's something that, like, is, is you know, like key to 1950s Catskill comedies, right? Mm -hmm. Very ethnic, but uh, good humored in a way in which there's a lot of, I poke you, but I laugh at myself. Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to tell a joke about your ethnicity. Now I'm going to tell a joke about my ethnicity. This is where you get a lot of these, you know, an Irishman, an Italian, and a Jew go into a bar. And the idea is that, like, I'm Italian, you're Jewish, and we're going to make fun of the Irish, but we're also going to laugh at ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, of course, lots of this stuff, you know, is... Uh, off color no longer but i i can remember the time when america was much more ethnic in the sense that um there would be hostilities between say germans and poles mm -hmm. uh, between italians and um you know slovaks and that you, there there was still such a thing as like the italian voting block which is gone they've, they've just become americans and so you know you watch those uh, roasts that were done by uh, uh, Dean Martin. Martin, and they they are full of uh, you know this kind of comedy. And of course, someone like uh, who's the big mouth? Uh, Don Rickles. Don Rickles, famous for this kind of comedy, mm -hmm. right? This kind of, uh, but like all of them, um, it, it comes out of vaudeville. It comes out of the Catskills, right? It's um, kind of poking fun at ethnic differences. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that that Catskills comedy was bringing people together by making us laugh at each other. Mm -hmm. But it, it's also highlighting that these people exist. So on TV, for example, Jews were often played by, by, by wasps. Mm -hmm. And then they're, they're giving given, you know, kind of Jewish expressions to say, which some like uh, hearing like Doris Day say, you know, certain kinds of things like uh, do that again and I'll give you, you know, punch in the face. And you're like, really? Doris Day would say that? <laughs> and, and the reason was is to make Jews look like everybody else, to make mm -hmm. them appealing and palatable. And so the vis visual media and TV especially really had a problem with what was some cool stuff that was going on in other parts of the culture in the sense that it was bringing us more together and TV was kind of maintaining an illusion. Mm -hmm.
something you don't see in the honeymooners, for example. You know, the honeymooners is a, is about uh, rural, uh, you know urban, poor, uh, just scraping by, getting into trouble, ethnic names all over the place, and that kind of earlies, er, like you know, honeymooners era stuff is not true anymore in the '60s. You could not make the honeymooners in the '60s, right? So moving on from there, getting into the uh, space race, as it happens in 1968, we get the launch of Apollo 7, which uh, makes it uh, out of the atmosphere and goes around the uh, Earth for uh, 10 days. Then we get Apollo 8, which uh, is a big deal because it uh, <laughs> takes pictures of the Earth. So that ends the year in a magical, in a magical touch. Between those two, we get the Soviets launching Zond 7, which orbits the moon and then returns to Earth, right? So the space race is 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 interesting here because each country is sort of <laughs> countering what the other one has done, right? So yeah. first the U.S. orbits the Earth. Fine, we're going to orbit the moon. Fine, we're going to go to the moon and take pictures. How about that? We're going to just uh, top one another as best we can, doing the littlest thing possible while also making leaps and bounds in the uh, in the space race. Obviously, it's only one more year before we uh, we land on the moon. So, yep. Uh, in more fun pop culture stuff, on Broadway, the uh, the musical Hair opens, right? As mm -hmm. does a a show called Boys in the Band. Both of these are counterculture of different types. Hair was what we think of when we hear counterculture in the '60s, right? Long-haired hippie people uh, singing many songs. It's very anti-Vietnam, and of course, there's the famous scene where everybody gets naked at the end of Act One. Big deals when it comes to Broadway. But the show called Boys in the Band was also the first Broadway show that uh, was openly gay-themed, with same-sex attraction, uh, same-sex attraction being addressed. Which, uh, again, another big move that uh, started to happen in the '60s. So let's talk about TV here again and its inability to, like, be realistic. Right. So you have a bunch of figures. Um, Liberace being a, an obvious example, but also uh, you have like guys who are on the on the game show circuit pretty regularly, right? Who, to our modern eyes, are obviously gay, mm -hmm. right? And flamboyantly so in a way that harkens back to like people don't need to be flamboyant anymore the way they they had been in the past. Mm -hmm. So even that that persona is dated. Um, and it's like America did not realize, and it, like could not make sense of, and TV played a big part of that, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, weird, look, we're watching gay people, but they're obviously not gay because, you know. We can't talk about that. Well, it's not just we can't. It's not like the audience knew. Uh -huh. The audience was like you know, profoundly unaware. Yeah. You have all these women watching Liberace and thinking he's, he's you know, yeah. the cat's pajamas and not knowing. Mm -hmm. And to, to us, we're like, how can you not know? <laughs> right. And yet they did not. And I feel like had you been a club goer, had you seen Liberace at a nightclub in the Catskills or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in Miami or L.A. or... Uh, it, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have been as deceived, right? It would have been elements of the nightclub act. It would have been you know comments that he made 
that he would have gone, oh, I see what's going on here. That that and that was all removed from TV. Right. Speaking of TV, we also get uh, Hawaii Five O starts this year. Uh, Love that. Yeah, everyone talks about the theme song. They're all like, I, I think that show is really popular because of the theme song. <laughs> so that's well, funny. It's, it's got a good structure, too. Uh-huh. You know, so we've talked about arcs before, right? Right. This was a show that had an arc. Mm, interesting. So you have this Chinese uh, spy. He's from Red China, right? And mm-hmm. he's the big bad. He is not in every episode. He's not lurking behind everything. But right. there will be a series of, of things that keep happening, and he's involved. So it's, it's in a sense, it's like the Klingons, right? We've, we've invented a kind of static adversary that we don't necessarily have to see every episode. Right. But, you know, that creates a, an arkiness, right? Because when you see him the next time, it's like, well, we got your last spy. What's his name? Oh, fat, I think. Is that his name? No, that's something else. I'm picking up on some other cultural doodad. Chinese adversary. Hawaii Five O. Whoa, fat. Oh, so close. I, yeah, I was. I just got that M up inverted. <laughs> it's Wofat. And, you know, the idea that you're going to have this, this, uh, you know, this storyline that keeps mm-hmm. popping up. Because here we are in the Pacific, right? Stuff's going right. on. Ooh, red Chinese activity. And then, of course, in, uh, in the remake, they just make it, you know, drugs and tongs and Chinese mafia stuff. Right. Also on TV, we get uh, the start of 60 Minutes, which was also the beginning of uh, investigative TV. So that was the the first of its kind. Obviously, 60 Minutes still on the air after all this time. With the exact same staff. (laughs) (laughs) Not anymore. I think both Mike Wallace and Harry Reasoner have passed on. But yes, into the 80s, they were still on the show for sure. And the... uh... The people who are on the show tend to be really old. It's like mm-hmm. they replaced old guys with guys who were just slightly not as old. Right. And I think this reflects the fact that, like, its audience is older. Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, in the same way that the kids aren't watching Matlock, <laughs> the kids aren't watching Mike Wallace either, uh-huh. right? Right. And so, you know, having a, an old trusted name who we've been watching for years that the older audience likes that. Right. You know who you are when you tell us that Food Lion is, you know, putting expired potato chips on the shelves. We are. <laughs> we believe you. Yeah, that's right. Um, a couple of interesting books that came out that this year. Uh, Isaac Asimov releases his Asimov's Mysteries, which is just a collection of short stories. Uh do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. This, of course, would go on to become the 1980s movie Blade Runner with Harrison Ford. And then, believe it or not, Agatha Christie wrote another book and released it. And did you know that she was still alive and writing into the 60s? <laughs> that blows my mind because she started in like, you know, 1908, I think, was her first was her first yeah. writing writing. 
And she died in 1976. That is crazy. Although I have to think that like, it's kind of like Stephen King, right? Who has, you know, been writing books since the late seventies and he's still writing books. It's kind of almost that same time frame. Um, in fact, I read one of his, I read 112263, which is sort of this time travel book about the JFK assassination. Still amazing. It's, I mean, it's great. So still a great writer, Stephen King, but that blew my mind. Also, um, as we've discussed, 2001 A Space Odyssey comes back or uh, comes out this year. Uh, we'll talk about that, I think, next week. That's going to be a, a, a great time to talk about. Great thing to talk about. Also, Planet of the Apes was another big movie that came out that year as well. And Night of the Living Dead, right? Uh, the first super popular zombie movie by Roger Corman. Also, much like Star Trek, a genre film using using film to say something, right? You're using, yes, the medium to say something. Talks, talks a little bit about Vietnam. Obviously, it has a black lead in the movie. So, again, very Star Trek-like in that case. Lastly, just some music that came out this year. Uh, in the early part of 1968, the Beatles released Hey Jude. Towards the end of the year, they released the White Album. Marvin Gaye, I heard it through the grapevine, Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson, and then, uh, of course, an amazing song, Otis Redding singing Dock of the Bay. And yeah, yeah. I, go ahead. If I were, you know, looking for the, the genre or the kind of entertainment which has the least of the, like, artificiality about America's multi-ethnicity, it's music. Mm-hmm. It's Music first, probably nightclubs and comedy second, uh, theater third, and I think radio comes before TV. TV's dead last. Mm-hmm. But music, music from the very beginning. I was going to uh, say, you know, jazz. Even, well, even when you had, um, you know, lots of segregation going on in the way thing, like you, race records were still a thing right before we called them rhythm and blues. Kids would buy those records. Mm-hmm. They would listen to those radio stations. And so there was crossover that was you know, happening in music way before there was crossover happening anywhere else. And then, of course, you get, um, and this is true, this is, I think, so specific to the nightclub scene, whether it's music nightclubs, like uh, guys like uh, Bing Crosby and... Uh, Sinatra. Yeah, um, but I'm thinking of, uh, I'm getting old, because I can't remember people's names. Louis Armstrong? Yeah, Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby, and uh, Frank Sinatra, and... Any other day I would know this. His uh, yeah. his, bo- his band leader, right? That's what you're trying to think of. You're getting old, too. Yeah, it sucks. And uh, was, they know each other because of nightclubs, because they're checking out each other's acts, because you're checking out the acts that are good, and they meet each other at the clubs. They go clubbing together, and so nightclubs, in 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 that sense, is one of these great foundations of integration. Because first, the artists get to know each other, learn from each other. Uh, you have stuff where they're putting each other in each other's stuff, right? I mean, how many times is uh, Louis Armstrong on Bing Crosby's TV show? Right, he's on all the time. And the way they act on TV, and of course, how do you tell? The same thing happened with Sinatra and uh, 
I'm going to have to look up his name. He was a dancer. He had one eye. Candyman. Uh, Sammy Davis Sammy Jr. Jr. Boy, are we old. <laughs> um, so you, you have situations where, like, the Las Vegas casinos would, would say you can't perform here or you can't come in through the front door. You've got to use the entertainment. Inter- and, you know, Sinatra would be like, excuse me? Right. You're asking my friend to use this, you know, bizarre door? No. And, you know, basically bullying casinos into letting Sammy Davis use whatever door he wants. And once Sammy Davis can come in the front door, how do you tell the next artist that they can't? Right. You have uh, cities like uh, New Orleans saying, you can have black bands, you can have white bands, but there can't be integrated bands. And a guy like uh, Louis Armstrong puts together the his all-star band. Yeah. And it's integrated. And... and New Orleans says, well, you can't play. And Louis Armstrong says, I can't play in New Orleans? He never went back. He, he basically blacklisted New Orleans for not letting him play with his integrated band. And he would play all over the place. He would sing about New Orleans, but he never went there again. Hmm. And uh, so I just think that the nightclub is like the locus of, of integration in a way that like TV is the opposite. TV right. is the last place, and, and I don't, I don't really know why. I mean, I think it, it has, you know, radio and TV are one-to-many kinds of communication, in which you can control what goes out, and right. once people have that control, they want to exercise it, and they may have benevolent motives, which doesn't mean they can't be horrible, horrible people. Mm-hmm. Right. In the sense that you can do terrible things with your benevolent motives. You know, everyone thinks that they're the hero of their own story. Right. Right. You know, the Nazis thought they were doing the good thing. The uh, the Japanese in World War Two thought they were doing the good thing. Mm-hmm. Stalin thought he was doing the good thing. Ushering in, you know, the new age of the new Soviet man and whatnot. But when you have that kind of control of one to many, but the nightclub is the opposite of that. Right. There's a million, right. a million places to go. And it's easy to take small risks in a nightclub. And when it pays off with the audience, you just keep doing it. And if mm-hmm. audiences want to see uh, integrated bands or there are integrated audiences watching, uh, you know, black performers, then it just happens. Yeah. And if people complain about it, then you just move a little bit. Mm-hmm. You just, it, the, you know, the. The, the nightclub has this uh, this openness and TV as the opposite. Right. It's because of advertisers, right? I mean, that's probably well, one I of think, the big reasons. I think that's part of it. Aver- and so advertisers, so there's good things and bad things about this advertising phenomenon, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. They both go to the same thing, is that they are cautious and do not want to piss off their... Uh, their customers, their consumers, yeah. So on the one hand, one of the reasons that news was so mainstream, so consensus-based, in which both Republicans and Democrats could watch the news and and find it acceptable, even Mm -hmm. if, you know, they would be complaining by one side or the other about this or that, was that if you were driven by Tide, Tide wants to sell to everybody. Yeah. 
And that means you can't piss off a whole lot of people and keep Tide happy. Right. You need to stick stuff in that broad middle where everyone is is cool with it. Or we all understand what this is. You know, your your communists are still going to complain, right? Mm-hmm. Your uh, you know knuckleheads on both sides are still going to have issues, but they know what they're watching. This yeah. is the this is the official voice of American news or whatever, right? And when that goes away, then you get much more into a sense of like news today, where you know someone says something you know newsy, and the people who make the news are like, oh, we, we can't do that. We can't be honest because people turn to us for comfort. And you're like, well, oh, we're in a subscriber based model in which we're trying to keep our subscribers happy. Right. Rather than keeping the advertisers happy. And those interests are different because if your audience is right wing or left wing, you're going to give them the right wing or the left wing news that they want and they crave right. rather than making Tide happy. That you're somewhere in the middle and able to appeal to everybody. Yeah. And so that this business of appealing to everyone, it's got good, it's, you know, there are things that, that one can miss about it in today's news right. environment or entertainment environment and things that clearly uh, aren't, aren't any good. Well, and then you have the opposite side on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, you know, the BBC where the government's running it. And, right. you know, you've got people who are like, my government money is going to pay for this. You know, right. uh, Doctor Who runs into that into the 70s where, you know, I can't Mary Whitehouse, I think is her name, where, you know, she's always about like, look how violent Doctor Who is. You know, why is this crap on TV? My tax dollars are going to pay for this. So it's just the opposite problem. Well, you always have this problem of. Um, so there's a there's a case in the Victorian era. In which. Um, something is censored, and the argument in the case is we have to make things safe for the most vulnerable among us. And if this is your theory, we have to protect the audience because there are children who don't know what pregnancy is, so we can't have Lucy be pregnant on TV. Right. Um, you know, we we don't want to show uh, we don't want an, an unpleasant depiction of the mentally ill, so we just won't show them at all. Uh-huh. And everything's going to be Dick Van Dyke. And, you know, mm-hmm. of course, we're remembering that Dick Van Dyke is an anglicized, uh, you know, Carl Reiner, right? Right. So we, we're everything's going to be waspish and uncontroversial and funny in a way that, uh, it, you know, is is universal rather than particular. Then you, then you get into all kinds of artificiality. Mm-hmm. I, I love the Dick Van Dyke show. It's very funny. Yes. Because they're good at what they do. But it, it would have been, it's, it, you know, it's a cooler thing if Carl Reiner could have done his own show. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much all I got on 1968. Anything you want to hit that we haven't uh, talked about yet? No, I think we've uh, we've got a good... Uh, sense of 1968. I think so too. And especially in the way that it plays towards uh, what's going to be happening in the following season. I guess the one thing I'd add is, you know, we in, we we had a year of political violence in 2020. Mm -hmm. And we we do not understand political violence, you know, and and you had to go back to 
1967, 1968, 1969, and into the early 70s. There is a year, I think it's from 72 to 73, but it could be 71 to 72, in which there are 2,500 bombings in the United States. Wow. And there was a bombing in New York every day during this, this year period. Wow. And so, you know, until you get to something like that, we are playing at political violence in that sense, right? Now, I said you don't want to see it get any worse. Yeah. But we are not to the late 60s, early 70s level of political violence yet. It helps and to I, have a historical perspective. Exactly, exactly. And on that note, we'll wrap it up. Next week, we'll be doing, like I, like we said, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, because uh, really that's where, you know, uh, sci-fi becomes, uh, real, sci-fi realism happens at this point. You know, up until now, we've been getting a lot of, like, serials. We've been getting, you know, Martians and, and you know, uh, very Art Deco uh, flying saucers, where uh, that totally changes when we get to uh, a very serious 2001, A Space Odyssey. Also a, a very big inspiration for George Lucas when it came to what he wanted to do as far as visual effects in uh, in Star Wars. So that's I, next week. I, I cannot end the podcast, Matt. <laughs> why, why can? I'm just not going to. <laughs> I want to. <laughs> I want to. Uh, I'm the sixth member of the crew. That's right. And uh, I'm uh, <laughs> on that note, um, <laughs> my name's Matt coming to you from Austin and coming to you from Planet Odyssey is my brother Ken. <laughs> Say goodbye, Ken. Closing the Bombay doors. <laughs> all right, excellent. And we will see you all next week or two weeks. Two weeks. Why do I say that? Bye.